Hi, everyone. It is season two of the Let It Be podcast. I'm your host, Becky Sigenfus. Join my friends and me as we share conversations about little things, big things, all the things. This is your time. So whatever you have to do, let it go, let it wait, let it be. Hi, friends. Welcome to yet another episode of the Let It Be podcast. I am so glad that you meet us here every week to share stories that vary from light things to really hard topics. And this friend that I have with me today has been someone that I've known for many, many years. Her youngest and my oldest are pretty close in age. And we journeyed through uh, the nursery together at our old church. And she has a really amazing story. And it's a topic that is pretty prevalent in our society today. And one that, in my opinion, is of utmost importance. And so she is here to share her story and to share how she really overcame a really, really challenging decision that she made as a young girl and then carried the weight of that with her into adulthood. So Karen Anderson, thank you so much for coming on the Let It Be podcast. I'm so glad to have you here. So tell us just a little bit about who you are. I want to get into your story because I know it's multifaceted and somewhat complex, but just kind of tell us who you are and, and why you're here today. Okay. Um, well, my name is Karen Anderson. And, um, so I, um, gosh, where do I start with who I am? Um, I am a wife and a mother. Yeah. And um, I'm an artist. I, I have my own business. I um, I always describe myself as an artist. And then I say, and I have my own business and I'm a photographer. Yeah. <laughs> so Karen and Anderson take, Photography. Check I was me out. just going to say, you take amazing <laughs> pictures. So yeah. That's we, my plug. That's right. We, that's, we can do shameless plugs. No yes, problem thank you. at all. WW. No, okay. <laughs> do it. Tell it. Tell it. No, just it's KarenAndersonPhotos.com. And I mostly do high school seniors and families. I absolutely love it. It's a it's a wonderful creative outlet for me. Yeah. Um, and I'm I'm really a people person. I love people. So yeah. um yeah, I after doing I think I've had my business for like 12 years and I still get nervous before every single photo shoot. Yeah. And then at the end I have what I call my post session high uh-huh. because I've been with people for a period of time. And you can see that in your work. It's funny. My dad was a, had like a side hustle my whole life mm-hmm. and, and he did photography, but mm-hmm. that was like pre-digital era. Yes. And so when he would do weddings, he said it would make him so nervous because oh, yeah. you, you've got film in the mm-hmm. camera, literal film, which yes. if, if young ones listening, don't know what that is. Go look that it's, old school. it's old school. It's coming back in like everything else, <laughs> right? Like Polaroid and everything else. Um, but he would get so nervous before weddings because yes. you don't know what your work looks like until yes. you get those photos processed. Yes. So, yes. Um, so you do that on the side I and do. you're actually an empty nester cause you've, you've raised those Almost. kids. One still, I have a, a 17 year old son, but two daughters, 23 and 21 yeah. who are doing their thing and yeah. they're amazing. That is, so. it's just amazing to think of how quickly that season does go. Cause I, I mean, it'll be for us before we know it. I know it sounds like a cliche and it's so True. Yeah. I mean, it goes so fast. It really does. You know, I've heard this, you've probably heard this. They say the, the days are long and the years are short. Yes. And that is so true. Yeah. 
I just, I've loved every stage with my kids. I love the baby stage. I loved the, what I called my child rearing years. Yeah. Um, and, and I've loved that transition Mm -hmm. of my relationship with my kids to more of an adult relationship. It's a beautiful time. We have too. We, I have not grieved any milestone. Mm -hmm. I have loved every transition. My, both my girls are in high school now, which Mm -hmm. throws that into a different category. Mm -hmm. And I just really enjoy spending time with them beyond parenting them. Yes. My 23 year old called me uh, the other night. Of course she called me at like 1130. Of course. Right. I'm 50. (laughs) Okay. Um, but we stayed on the phone until like two o'clock in the morning. And finally I'm like, so I have to go to sleep. Right. But I didn't want to stop. Like it was so wonderful. It was like talking to a girlfriend. Um, so that was great. I love that. Well, you have quite a story and it's a story that you haven't publicly shared until just recent years. Yes. Correct. Yes. Um, and I want to dive into that and I want to just go ahead and tell the listeners that this is probably going to be a longer conversation. So this podcast will most likely be a two-parter. So make sure that when you get to the end, um, you just plan on being here again next week. So why don't you just go ahead and start from those high school years and just share what your experience was? Okay. Um, so, so I, I always kind of say, I refer to this not only as my story, but it really is my testimony. Mm -hmm. Um, and yes, I never shared this publicly in any way until the last couple years and, and God has me on a beautiful journey, but, um, okay. So I, I grew up in Cleveland in a small suburb of Cleveland, kind of like your picture perfect little town. Okay. Um, I had a very well-known family in town. Um, my dad was the elder, uh, at our church. Um, my parents were loosely involved in local politics. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom, you know, was on the school board for a while and, and stuff like that. Um, and I really had kind of like the after school special perfect, yeah. if anybody remembers yeah. what after school specials are. I do. Um, perfect upbringing mm-hmm. and childhood. Um, I grew up going to church every Sunday. I had a very formal church upbringing, though, mm-hmm. I would say. Uh, my parents are still at the same church that I grew up in. Wow. Um, and it was a small church, but like loved my church family. We went to church every Sunday, mm-hmm. uh, confirmation class, Sunday school, helped with vacation Bible school in the summers, mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff. Um, so I very much valued my church. I had a deep respect and understanding for faith in my life, but I did not have a personal relationship with Christ. I didn't mm-hmm. under, you didn't even know what that was. Yeah, right. Like that had not been, um, modeled for me. Mm-hmm. And, and in all due respect to my parents, they didn't understand at that point either, mm-hmm. that next layer to mm-hmm. faith, the real core of faith, which was a personal relationship. Yeah. Um, so, um, I would say that my faith life was a combination of what I had learned in church and what felt right to me. And, you know, I considered myself a very good person. Yeah. Um, so what felt right to me, especially as I became a teenager, that really became much more sort of in the forefront of my understanding of faith because I didn't read the Bible. I didn't read my Bible. Yeah. And so, um, Jesus was this very loving, accepting, um, part of my life, which of course he is, but I really didn't know who he was because we learn who he is through his word and through the Holy spirit. So, Mm -hmm. um, so definitely as I was 
um, going through high school, it was a lot of, you know, what felt right to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there were some things that felt right to me that I justified because mm-hmm. I thought, well, God wouldn't let me feel this way yes. if this wasn't right. And feelings are liars. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. I have that underlined and highlighted in yeah. my, in my Bible, the heart is deceiving. Um, so, um, should we just jump right into my story? Yeah. Okay. So, um, yeah, I was kind of that girl in high school. I was a class president. I was mm-hmm. very popular. Mm-hmm. Um, shortly before graduating, I got a full tuition scholarship to the university of my choice. Mm. I mean, I, and then I describe when I have shared this publicly is I really felt golden. Yeah. I really did. The golden child. Like life was going well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so... I graduated from high school and right in those first like weeks after graduating, a big group of my friends were all getting together and we were going to go swimming. So everybody was meeting at my best friend's house and everybody was going to pile in cars and we were going to, you know, head off Mm -hmm. to spend the day together. Mm -hmm. And so as I'm standing outside my best friend's house, this guy pulls up on a motorcycle, no less. Of course. And, you know, I was sort of that good girl and I was like, hello. You know, (laughs) like uh, Greece. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'd never thought of it that way. I was Sandy and he was Danny. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So anyway, I... uh, I asked if I could ride on the back of his motorcycle because that sounded so dangerous. (laughs) And so like, anyway, um, yeah. So by the end of the day, we were like, yeah, we're going to start dating by the end of the summer. We were absolutely in love with each other. Um, he was, uh, so different from me. He'd grown up different than from me. I, I mean, I grew up in a town where there literally was two sides of the railroad tracks uh-huh. and I lived on one side and yes. he lived on the other. Gotcha. Um, so anyway, when it was time for me to leave for school, we just decided we couldn't live without each other. Mm-hmm. So he had committed that he was going to drive the five hours to my university every other weekend. Wow. And we were going to make it work. Mm-hmm. And I had this naive schoolgirl vision in my mind mm-hmm. that um, I was going to finish my degree and then we were going to get married and we were going to live in this little house and have a white picket fence right. and a flagpole with the American flag in the front yard uh-huh. and live happily ever after. And why not? That can happen. And right. that was going to happen for me because let's you not forget child. I was golden. Yeah. <laughs> so things just worked out for me. Right. Um, the relationship uh, progressed quickly. Uh-huh. And again, let's go back to remembering that I, my faith and what was right and wrong was a lot of what felt right to me. Mm-hmm. Um, this relationship felt very right to me. Mm-hmm. So uh, very early on, it was like I left for school in August, the end of September, mm-hmm. uh, I missed my period. Mm. And that is absolutely positively terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember going to the um, like convenience store yeah. on campus to buy a pregnancy test. And I bought a whole bunch of other things, <laughs> which you hear other people saying, this, right. like that's going to work. Right. Like they're going to go pack a gum, pencil set, pregnancy test, <laughs> shampoo, (laughs) you know, (laughs) and I remember, and I just thought, okay, she's just going to stick the stuff in a bag and I'm going to get the heck out of here. Um, and I remember specifically 
the cashier looking at me mm. as she rang up the pregnancy test. And, and I've described this, like the shame mm-hmm. that just absolutely washed over me. Um, so I went back to my dorm room and I thank God to this day that my roommate was there when I took the pregnancy test. Um, it was positive. Mm-hmm. And I, I search for words to describe how I felt. Devastated is the best word that I have, but it is so insufficient for how I felt. I could not believe I'm pregnant. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously that's a dumb thing to say. I was having sex with my boyfriend. Mm-hmm. I knew where babies came from. Mm-hmm. I just never thought it was going to happen to me. Yeah. I just didn't. Mm-hmm. Um. And so I was in a complete, I completely fell apart. Um, My first phone call was to my boyfriend and uh, he made it very clear that he did not want me to have this baby. Mm -hmm. We were in no way prepared to be parents. Mm -hmm. And we had only been dating at this point at what, like four months? Yeah. Um, and we were in love and we both intended on staying together, Mm -hmm. but you know, his whole thing was like, what are you going to do about school? And you know, how are we going to support ourselves and on all of this kind of stuff? Um, so I then called my parents Mm -hmm. and I had a very open relationship with my parents. You know, I had never told them, you know, we're having sex, but, um, I told my parents, I, I said, I, I'm pregnant. And my parents also very much did not want me to have this baby. And I think that, and, and my mom and I have talked about this a million times since, and it was a combination of things. It was a combination of them not wanting the shame mm-hmm. um, of having a teenage pregnant daughter, Yeah, of them being very worried about my future. Mm -hmm. You know, I was on a path. Mm -hmm. I was golden. Mm -hmm. And also they, they were never in favor of my relationship with my boyfriend. And they very much hoped that I was going to go off to college and that relationship was going to end. And, you know, so they didn't put a lot of pressure on me about that relationship because they're like, this thing's going to run its course. Um, and they knew if I had a baby with him, you know, he was in my life forever. Right. What, so his first reaction was, I don't want you having this baby yes. as well as your parents. Yes. What was your gut reaction regarding the baby? Um, I didn't let myself think about the baby. Mm. I thought about the pregnancy. Gotcha. Um, and I, I did not want to be pregnant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wasn't letting myself think about a baby. Mm-hmm. This was a situation, mm-hmm. not a human being is, mm. is how in those first moments, right. I was processing it. It was a line on a stick. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and so, uh, my mom, who was a very, um, a very strong take charge kind of woman, you yeah. know, she kind of, you know, went into mama bear mode mm-hmm. and she said, okay, um, we're going to pick you up tomorrow. I'm going to take you to my gynecologist and let's find out if this is really happening. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So she did. My parents picked me up the next day. The next day I had an appointment with my mom's gynecologist. And I remember, I will never forget this day. I was alone in the examination room with the doctor. Uh, I had just, she had just gone to get the results of the pregnancy test. She came back into the room and she said, yes, it, it was positive. And I absolutely, you know, I started crying. I was just a shell of myself at this point. Mm -hmm. I I can't, and I am also a pretty together person. And I was just uh, a mess. Mm -hmm. And I remember just crying and holding my head in my hands. And I said to the doctor, I said, I don't know what I'm going to do. And she, uh, in a very condescending, kind of just, non-emotional way. She goes, um, Karen, she goes, you're not actually thinking about having this baby, are you? Mm-hmm. And she's like, you're 18 years old. You just started college. You have the rest of your life to have a baby. Um, I can take, we can take care of this tomorrow and you can go on with your life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I will say in, from the time I took the test to the time I was in that room, there was not a single person in my life, not my roommate, not my boyfriend, not my parents, not my doctor, no one who ever said, all right, let's take a deep breath and let's just walk down your options. Let's walk down those paths. What if you had the baby? What if you had the baby and placed it for adoption? Let's look down the road if you have an abortion. It was just, here's a problem. You've got to take care of it and take care of it fast. Yeah. And it felt very selfish to make any decision other than an abortion mm-hmm. to, every, to myself wow. and also to everyone else in my life. Mm-hmm. I was going to really screw things up for everybody, including me, yeah. if I had a baby. And so I said, okay. Now, I say all of what I just said, not that I am trying to put the blame on the other people in my life for the, for the decision, but I just want people to understand the pressure. Mm-hmm. When you are in an unplanned pregnancy, and what in the, in the industry, we used to term a crisis pregnancy. Right. It's never not a crisis. Right. And... When you are in a crisis, you are looking for an escape from the crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, uh, it was scheduled for the next day. So the next day, and, and I will say, I'm not going to be overly graphic, but if there are young children listening to this, this probably is not the most appropriate. And um, so moms may want to put their headphones on yeah. or whatever. So I was scheduled not at an abortion clinic, at an outpatient, you know, medical facility. And um, I will tell you that I have a lot of, of still now, over th- now 30 years later, mm-hmm. issues with that doctor because um, she just made it so easy. Mm. Easy for me, easy for my parents. Anyway, so um, I remember sitting in the waiting room mm-hmm. and... I was so full of shame Mm -hmm. and I couldn't look at anybody 
you know, and the waiting room was full and I just wondered what everybody else was there for, you know, like what, what were they at this outpatient medical clinic for? Uh, and I knew what I was there for and I didn't want to look at anybody because I was so sure that if they looked at my face, they would know what a horrible person Mm -hmm. I was. And so I kind of sat being as small as possible, looking down. My name was called. I was taken back to like a small operating room, um, asked to lay on the table. And the doctor was at the end of the bed. Um, I could see the abortion suction machine, you know, in the corner. There was a nurse there in the room. And as soon as I lay down on the table, I just started crying hysterically. And it it was the nurse's job to kind of calm me down. And so we could start the process. And I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't just crying. I was hysterical. And uh, I can't see her face, but I just remember her presence so much. I know she was a little bit older, like heavier woman, uh, very motherly. Mm -hmm. And she leaned down and whispered in my ear. And she said, sweetie, do you know what we're about to do? And I was furious that she whispered that in my ear because I did know what we were about to do. And didn't she realize I was doing my very best to not think about it, mm-hmm. <laughs> but she needed my consent. Mm-hmm. Um, more than anything, I recognized at that moment that God was giving me one last chance mm-hmm. to get up off the table, run out of the room and not do this. And I, um, I could not calm down. And I think there was a a sort of, you know, subliminally maybe in my mind, this idea that if I'm so hysterical, they won't be able so I won't have to say no. Yeah. They'll just say, say, you know what, we're going to have to schedule this for another day. I remember the doctor saying, we've got to get on with this. And so they, um, uh, they put gas over my face. I was actually not conscious for the procedure, which is not typical. Yeah. Um, I remember waking up in the recovery area Mm -hmm. and, um, I was by myself, you know, with the curtain around my bed Mm -hmm. and, uh, when I woke up, I had a tremendous cramping, um, and I could feel all kinds of padding between my legs. And I remember pulling the sheet back and looking down. And now I had had no pre-procedure counseling. I wasn't told what I what, what to, to expect. expect. I think there was just this understanding that you knew what an abortion was. Mm-hmm. Um, And when I looked down, I mean, the padding was absolutely saturated with blood and it, it shocked me. I mean, it jarred me and, uh, I don't know what I expected. I know I did not expect that. And the reality of really the brutality of what had just happened was undeniable. Um, I remember putting my hand on my stomach and just thinking, okay, it's over. Um, but of course, that is one of the greatest lies of abortion because it wasn't over. Yeah. It wasn't even close to being over. Yeah. 
So after that, how do you even move forward? Did you go back to school? Did you? Well, here is the uh, one (laughs) of the most difficult things about abortion and one of Satan's most powerful and favorite tools is a secret Mm -hmm. because abortion is a secret Mm -hmm. and it has incredibly destructive power. And you know, there's lots of secrets, secrets of abuse, secrets of rape, secrets of abortion in all of these shame secrets. Mm -hmm. And because you have an abortion because you don't want anybody to, to know, know that you're pregnant. Mm-hmm. And so you cannot openly mourn. You cannot openly suffer right. because then people are going to go, what the heck's wrong with you? Like, right. hello, golden child. What's your problem? Right. Bad hair day. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, so I had to pretend that everything was okay. And so, yeah, I went back to school and Every day I would, you know, get up and put on my makeup and go to class and function to the best of my ability. Uh, I was incredibly broken. And again, I'm still dear friends with my college roommate. That poor girl had to listen to me cry myself to sleep every night, trying to be quiet Mm -hmm. so she wouldn't hear me. Um... I developed, I had a lot of responses that are very, very common to women who have had an abortion. Uh, I developed an eating disorder and, you know, that's a podcast for another day, but eating disorders are often, often have very little to do with weight or food. Uh, For me, I, you know, looking back now, I realize it was, I was grasping desperately for control. Yeah. And I thought, okay, this is a way I can maybe, um, get some control Mm -hmm. in my life. Yeah. Um, And I would often drink too much, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I was in college. A lot of people drink too much. That was easy to blend in. Yeah. Um, Trying to suppress memories and feelings. So, um, yeah, I carried on. Yeah. So eventually you finish college mm-hmm. and you move on to the next phase of life. How did this memory continue to just sit on your shoulders and weigh in your soul as you cl- you know, checked off the milestones and mm-hmm. moved on to the next chapter? Yes. So um, I will say that my boyfriend and I stayed together for two and a half years. Wow. And that's probably unusual, right? Um, y- you know, I... I it, the experiences of abortion are run the gamut. Mm-hmm. You know, some people end up marrying the person that, that those people stay together. Sometimes you're married already. Um, lots of times relationships break up. I mean, we were not a casual relationship. So mm-hmm. yeah, certainly a lot of women who have an abortion, they're doing that because it's not a solid relationship. Right. Um, ours was, but I mean, there was a million reasons why that relationship should have ended. But I think in my mind, I thought you know, I sacrificed a child for this relationship. Mm -hmm. I will make this relationship Mm -hmm. work. Um, and it shouldn't have. And, and thankfully I eventually did end that relationship. Um, and then, uh, a couple years later, um, I met my husband, my husband today, and I always intended on telling my husband about my abortion I just didn't know how to tell him. Wow. My husband 
presented as a very strong Christian. Mm-hmm. He had extremely strong views and often very blunt views on a lot of the, you know, issues of the day. Right. And abortion being one of those. Mm-hmm. And so I remember one day, many times actually, thinking, I have to tell him, I have to tell him, I have to tell him. And this was before we were married. Um, and I remember specifically one day saying, um, you know, so what do you think of women who've had an abortion? And he said, yeah, well, I wouldn't want to be them on judgment day. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and I'm not going to tell him mm-hmm. <laughs> because I didn't want to be me on judgment day either. Mm-hmm. So, uh, we dated, we got very serious. Next thing we were engaged and I hadn't told him about my abortion. And then we were married <laughs> and I had not told him about my abortion. Wow. Um, I just can't even imagine because even scripture says that when we keep something hidden, it, it can physically make us sick. Yes. Um, and I did a lot of soul searching and mm-hmm. really justifying why it was better not to tell him, you know, it was before I met him. It didn't involve Mm -hmm. him. It was only going to hurt him. Mm -hmm. You know, he really didn't need to know Mm -hmm. it was going to change how he felt about me. This was my cross to bear, you know, all of that. Where was your relationship with Jesus during this? Okay. So I will say that in the, and then I want to get back to you telling your husband. So, um, when I met my husband, uh, and I was going to church, you know, uh, in college, mm-hmm. I was, um, I would go by myself and right as soon as my husband and I started dating, we immediately started going to church together. Okay. And my husband had a very different experience with his faith than I had. And I will say my husband really introduced me to a personal mm-hmm. relationship with Christ. Um, and that completely changed my faith. You know, uh, um, I was reading my Bible and I was, uh, having more intimate prayer Mm. and really getting to know Jesus, building that relationship. I I will say I I have this, uh, you know, and as an artist, I'm a very visual person, but I, I will say when I was in college, I have this visual in my mind of me walking down the sidewalk and there being this huge concrete wall to my side and Jesus was right on the other side of it, walking step by step by step with me. Mm-hmm. And he was right there all along. And that wall was really a wall I had put up mm-hmm. that was keeping me from having a really true intimate relationship with my savior. Um, so, but it wasn't that he wasn't with me. Yeah. He was with me. Yeah. He let me put the wall up and it was up to me to take the wall down. So, um, about several years into my marriage, uh, my husband and I were participating in a couple's Bible study at our church. And this was one of those Bible studies where, um, you know, you have a workbook and you go home and you do your homework assignments each night. And then you meet once a week to discuss as a group. And this particular week's homework was helping your spouse to heal from their past. Oh, wow. And I remember doing the homework assignment that night and getting into bed and just feeling like an absolute fraud. Mm. And I just thought, 
he, how, how could he help me with my past? He doesn't even know my past. Right. And he has absolutely no idea who he's married to. Wow. So I got into bed and started to cry, which was not unusual. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time with like self-punishment. Mm-hmm. I, at this time, I, I worked in um, downtown Cincinnati and I had a very long commute to work. And so that time alone in my car each day was the time that I would think about the baby. I would wonder, you know, how old would the baby be right now? Was it a boy or a girl? I would make myself remember details of the abortion. Mm -hmm. Um, And all this time, I knew without a doubt, I mean, I had a personal relationship with Christ now. I knew that Christ would and could forgive me for my abortion. Right. There was no doubt about that. Right. I felt completely unworthy of that forgiveness. Mm. So I would spend this time kind of self-punishment, but also just pouring myself out to Christ and fully repenting, Mm -hmm. not only of the abortion, but of the premarital sex that led to the abortion. Mm -hmm. And and that's a whole nother uh, nuance that we could talk for a whole podcast about is this idea of um, sex and then it's the consequences of sex mm-hmm. that are these this horrible thing. My abortion was a consequence of, you know, the pregnancy was a consequence of the sex. The abortion was a consequence of the sex. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's all connected. So anyway, yeah. um, I felt completely, completely unworthy of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. So I would pour out myself, I would repent, but I would stop at asking for forgiveness because wow. I did not feel worthy of it. And I really felt like how in the world could I ask Jesus Christ to forgive me for this? And and this is something that I need to live with forever. Mm. So that night, um, I just remember uh, uh, thinking, I'm going to tell him. I don't know what came over me, but I was like, this is it. I am going to tell him. He is going to be absolutely repulsed by me. Mm. And he's going to leave me. And that will be yet another consequence mm. of my sin. So I, I sat up in bed. I turned on the light. And I told him everything. Mm. I told him everything like I sh- just shared with you. Um, and then I really, I just waited for him to lay into me. And I've described it this way every time I've talked about it. I really feel like at that moment, sitting in my bed <laughs> at late at night, that Jesus Christ entered the face of my husband. Because wow. when I looked at him, I just saw nothing but love. And it surprised me so much because I felt so unworthy of it. Mm-hmm. Um. So my husband told me that, you know, it wasn't his place to forgive me, but um, if I needed to hear it, that, you know, he forgave me. Um, And he started to share with me stories I already knew, but stories from the Bible of people who had sinned against God and who God still loved, you know, and even sexual sin like David. Mm -hmm. And so I will say I had accepted Jesus Christ as my savior 
years before this, but that night, I consider the night that I was born again. We are going to pause right here and we're going to pick up next week at the rest of Karen's story of how she got from the place of this breaking point of really finding Jesus in her circumstances and how he redeemed her story and led her down the next path. Thanks for being here for a very important conversation about a topic that's very important to me. I want you to know that if this is part of your story, there is hope. Make sure to come back next week for part two as Karen finishes her story and shares some next steps toward healing and health. You can stay up to date at Becky Ziegenfuss. That's Z-I-E-G-E-N-F-U-S-S. And as always, thanks for being part of the Let It Be podcast.